Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. Christopher Nolan's latest film, Oppenheimer, tells the story of the brilliant physicist who oversaw the construction of the first atomic bomb at a secret military base in the New Mexico desert. It goes on to chart the dark, complicated legacy of what he made there, a technology that has gone on to irrevocably change the world and that retains the real possibility of ending it. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Oppenheimer, pop culture happy hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Joining me today is NPR senior editor Bilal Qureshi. Hey, Bilal. Hey, Glenn. Also with us is podcast producer and film and culture critic Kate Young. Hey, Kate. Hey, Glenn. And rounding out the panel is filmmaker, pop culture critic, and iHeartRadio producer Joelle Monique. Welcome back, Joelle. Hey. Hey. So in Oppenheimer, Killian Murphy plays the brilliant theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer at various stages in his career as a young student in the 1920s, as a respected scientist in the 1940s tasked with corralling fractious physicists to beat the Nazis to the atomic bomb, and as an older and very public figure in the 1950s, whose U.S. security clearance is under review by McCarthy-esque politicians suspicious of his past affiliations with communists. Matt Damon plays Leslie Groves, the military commander who partnered with Oppenheimer to create the bomb at Los Alamos, New Mexico. And Robert Downey Jr. plays Louis Strauss, a man who eventually becomes Oppenheimer's political nemesis. Florence Pugh shows up for a bit to play Oppenheimer's first love, Jean, and Emily Blunt gets a bit more to chew on as his wife, Kitty. The rest of the cast is stocked with pretty much every white male character actor in Hollywood playing various <laughs> scientists and politicians and soldiers. Mostly, though, this is a film about a complicated and contradictory man whose work cast a shadow we will never get out from under. Oppenheimer was written and directed by Christopher Nolan and is in theaters now. Bilal, what'd you think? 
But first confession, like I'm a major Nolan stan, and so I, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a fan of his films, and was really curious about what the entry point to this would be because it can be either the IMAX spectacle of it, the action sequences of it. What I was not anticipating, and the reason I really loved it, is that I found this the most emotional of his films, and a character was really actually memorable because honestly, I can't really remember a lot of characters in his films, and mm-hmm. in this film, which is such an intimate portrait of someone, there was so much great writing, so much great acting, and and really driven by characters. It's not. Actually, what I was anticipating was going to be happening on screen. It was a lot of close-ups, and as you said, a lot of all the white male actors we've ever we've ever seen. But yeah, that, I think it's the fact of the of the writing and the focus here, which was really powerful. So I, I loved it. Yeah, the prop departments in Hollywood really cleared out of all their uh, horn rim glasses. A lot of horn rim glasses in this movie. <laughs> Joelle, what'd you think? I loved watching this movie. It really sucks you in and forces you into this emotional journey. If you follow Nolan films, you know about his love of playing with time. And so there was Mm -hmm. such a back and forth where at some points you're like, I'm not quite sure where I am. And we're in past films that has been a very confusing and turn off kind of emotion. Here, I just felt swept up by it. It felt almost as if time didn't matter, which was really compelling as there's a lot of Einstein in this film. It's heady, but beautiful. And, you know, a lot of internet folks are like, hey, Nolan, no sex in your movies. What's going on? He said, challenge accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Which I really agree. He was diving into some new stuff. So I really appreciated it. Overall, I enjoyed it. I do have some moral quandaries that we can circle back on later. Yeah, we're going to have to. All right, Kate, what'd you think? I mean, that's basically where I think I kind of landed. I mean, like Bilal, I'm a massive Nolan apologist. Like, I'm the person who thinks Tenet make complete sense, and I don't know what you're complaining about. Okay. Uh, You're the one. Good to meet you. (laughs) So I think I really went into this with fairly high expectations. I mean, this particular subject matter is not something that I was clamoring to see. But because it was something that Nolan was doing, I was interested in it. And I think overall, this is a really beautiful film. I think I was really drawn in by the visuals. I think the performances are excellent. You know, even Matt Damon got me, even though I think he tends to be unforgivably smug. But Mm. hair, it worked for me. You know, between all of the thousands of character actors... We were able to still get some standout moments. I feel like most of them were able to have a scene or two where they really got to kind of show what they can do and why they've been cast. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I really had a lot of difficulty separating that from, I think, the moral issues of this film. Like, I came away thinking, maybe I should be a communist. Like, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> like, <laughs> And I think that, I mean, this because this movie is broken up into pretty discrete sections, right? We've got, can you make a bomb? Let's make a bomb. Should we have made a bomb? Mm-hmm. And I think it lost me a little in the first part. But once we got to let's make a bomb, honestly, all of those scenes of preparation really intrigued me because they're essentially trying to solve a theoretical problem in the physical world. And I think for them, it just, as scientists, it's just it's a challenge, right? And I admire that because who doesn't want to solve a problem no one else has been able to solve? But I think once the bomb is complete and they drop it, that is when they begin to engage with the moral quandary. And it frustrated me because these were always concerns and there were many people who raised those concerns. And I feel like Oppenheimer doesn't get to pretend like he's somehow seen the light when you always knew that this was a possibility. You knew that you were going to kill hundreds of thousands of people and you still made the bomb. So, you know, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think in as much as the film attempts to grapple with that, that's when it's most interesting. And any Mm -hmm. chance or any whiff I got that they were trying to let Oppenheimer off the hook in any way is when I thought the film got much less interesting. Mm -hmm. But I thought this film really succeeded 
where it most needed to, because of course there, as you mentioned, there's built in drama and suspense in construction and testing a bomb. Mm -hmm. And I, Nolan is Nolan. He's going to handle that with a lot of skill and craft and everything he does. And we should say this kind of goes against a lot of like Nolan critiques. This movie is not ponderous. It moves mm -hmm. along at a very brisk clip. Sure does. Probably the most fast-paced movie he's ever done. We go in and out of scenes really fast. But Batman might be comparable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The real challenge of this film is in that final hour. That's why I wasn't checking my watch because that's where the rubber meets the road. That's the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. How do you dramatize what mm -hmm. happens after once the bomb is out in the world? How do you depict how much the world changed? And I think what you might be picking up on, Kate, is the same thing I did, which is when I realized he was going to depict the change in the world with a tiny little security clearance hearing – in a grotty little government room, <laughs> yeah. the choice to make this film about mass destruction and the, and the extinction of human lives is so reined in into small rooms with scientists mm -hmm. talking to politicians. How did that work for you guys? I mean, I think that it was effective in the sense that it made it more focused on his own reckoning with what he has done. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of those, you know, in the, the herring room scenes, I enjoyed them in the sense that I feel like they were able to give us a little bit more insight into how he started to interact with the government once this happens. And he, you know, essentially says, like, maybe we shouldn't do this again. Mm -hmm. But I also agreed with some of the officials who were conducting the investigation because you don't get to make the bomb and then say, well, you were mad to use the bomb. Like, that's mm -hmm. what you made it for, for them mm -hmm. to use the bomb. So why are you upset that they used the bomb? And yeah. I think he pretty much immediately begins to be haunted by that. I think there's a scene after they've announced it, he goes to essentially kind of, I don't know, I guess have a rally with the rest of the people at Los Alamos. And that was one of the things that I think really bugged me because there's this horde of people clapping and cheering and rejoicing over murdering people. Mm -hmm. And it really took me out a little bit. And I think that the film definitely recognizes that and it definitely just tried to reckon with that. But it, it just felt so grotesque to me. Mm -hmm. It is grotesque, but I think they revel in the grotesqueness of it. And I think it's a real problem for their protagonists, which I like. Listen, if we go back to the, these boardrooms, I sort of like this because I think a lot of major decisions that get played out in the world are made in these small back rooms. Mm -hmm. And then sure. you're comparing two types of trials. The nemesis in this movie is going through his own <laughs> trial. There are a lot of similarities and comparisons that can be made between the trials. They're both trying to hurt each other. Theoretically, in these trials, there's a lot of, like, mm -hmm. to me, dramatic tension in those trials that I like. And I love the scene that you're talking about. There's a, an interesting choice by the filmmakers to showcase the damage of the bomb without showing actual victims mm -hmm. of the bombing. And it's conflated with that sick feeling of, I've accomplished something, but what I've accomplished is horrendous. And it's terrifying and it's completely out of my control now. Mm -hmm. To me, that's dramatically believable and had a direct impact. I'm glad I don't have to see actual victims. I, I didn't want like mm -hmm. documentary footage in there. And I understand yeah. that particularly as the Asian American community is dealing with a lot of real world violence, that sometimes seeing that stuff on screen, and again, a real world event can be very traumatic. And so this was a very interesting way to sort of move around that. But then because mm -hmm. of that decision, we don't hear it from any of the actual victims. It yeah. remains theoretical, which maybe was the point in the yeah. film. The whole film is about mm -hmm. theory only being able to take you so far. But if that's the point, then at some point, don't we need to get to the actual Impact. trauma that was caused? It's sensed to me like something was missing. And it was the voice of the people who were brutally damaged Effect, by yeah. this bomb. And then I think that was an issue for me. 
Yeah, Bilal, you talked about how this is one of his most emotional films. How does that connect with what we're talking about? Yeah, you know, I mean, while I was watching it, I was also thinking about not only the like effect on what where the bomb was dropped and how the film dealt with those two sequences in a way that, to your, all of your points, like it was an interesting creative choice. And then as I've sat with it more, I do find that like the emotion of it came from being so focused on Oppenheimer, obviously, like the central character mm-hmm. is the idea of how somebody makes that decision and then wrestles with it. And, you know, not that far from Los Alamos, you had internment camps where people were being held at this time and segregation is sort of hinted at in the film, but never really shown. And so there's a lot going on in the country at the time that is kept sort of on the margins of this laboratory and this character. And actually, ultimately, I didn't have any moral quandary with the film's portrayal in that regard because I found it to be really powerful to remember that that's how the military-industrial complex works. That's how America became the superpower that it became. I'm originally from Pakistan, a country that joined the nuclear arms race, had tests as well. And, you know, the way that the kind of world that we entered... Which is what this this is also one of I think Nolan's best films in my opinion because it's actually not an original screenplay in the sense that it's adapted from an incredible book that won the Pulitzer Prize on Oppenheimer, um, American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, and I think that the whole portrait of it is to say how scientists, knowledge makers, creatives can be swept up by the, a moment of war and 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 exploited actually because I think that that's where the morality and emotion of it came to me is the era that follows the war. I mean, I don't think we talk a lot about, you know, what happened during McCarthyism to not just actors in Hollywood, but to lots of people. Mm-hmm. And so I'd, I guess I found that ultimately, as I've sat with it, I actually think the the ambiguity of it, the kind of bigness of it and the focus, the sort of very narrow focus actually worked really well to me to making you think about how people end up in these positions and end up have li- having lives that are like super unraveled as a result of it. Uh, so it was a very, tra- yeah. I thought it was a very tragic film ultimately. But anyway, I mean, I, I I appreciate though that you know there was a real opportunity when the bomb is dropped and you have Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which are we don't really see on screen the story of what happened there. The choice not to show it was very interesting. Um, anyway, yeah. but yeah, no, I mean, I, still thinking about a lot of that stuff, and I, I like that it leaves you thinking. That I appreciated that very much. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I do think you've hit on. The other big challenge that Nolan made for himself here, which was you're dealing with a figure like Oppenheimer who was so famously hard to read. Mm-hmm. So the performance has to be interior. He could be very charismatic and convince people to do anything, but it has to be an inward performance. And you choose Murphy for that, which is a great idea because that guy's face, man, the plane Ugh. of that face, mm-hmm. those cheekbones, those eyes, there is no <laughs> – this man is incapable of a micro expression, right? Everything just <laughs> rolls across it like a storm in the desert. And it also has to encompass so much nuance and complexity and contradictions and ethical messiness. And I was really worried going into this, guys, because Nolan is not my go-to director for interiority, for (laughs) emotional nuance. He can do narrative complexity. God knows. He can only do narrative complexity. (laughs) I mean, you give this guy Goldilocks and Three Bears, you'll have six timelines and and seven points of view. (laughs) But human complexity, not his thing. This movie works best for me when it does not shy away from the ethical contradictions of creating this bomb. Yes, it shows, oh, we got to beat the Nazis. But it also shows, peeking out around the edges, this very human drive and ambition and pride to demonstrate mm-hmm. this thing that you work so hard to make. The more it sticks to that and doesn't shy away from that, the more I found this film interesting. A hundred percent. I don't think you can help but feel it. When I think about 
directors with great handles on character. You think like Steven Spielberg and his famous introductions. And I think Ava DuVernay has really mastered mm. truth telling through her character, specifically through her use of language. There's something about Nolan being able to do groups of people that is so masterful. It's not just Oppenheimer calling into question what's happening. It's everybody at different points for different reasons. All of that around literally making a bomb, like the way they build that tension to this epic scene, which I am only going to say there's very few times you'll watch a movie and it'll make you consider like to be aware of your own breath, mm-hmm. right? That's, it has a strange feeling and it comes very rarely. And man, it's a long, beautiful moment of just thinking about life and death and yeah. your own choices. And it, it really puts you in the center of what it must've been like to be on this team. And I thought, gosh, if a film can do all of that and still have an hour to go and mm-hmm. still be compelling, all the way through, that's a master class. And I, and I really think it comes from Nolan's ability to do big groups of characters well. Yeah, I agree. And I think that is always true of Nolan's films. But to what Joel was seeing, like there are explosions in this film, both real and imagined, that are so stunning that I think it made me sit back a little bit and think really hard about what it means to have to engage with something like that on a more literal level. Mm-hmm. Like I can look at these things and say like, oh, these this smoke is billowing and it's gorgeous. But like that is the after effect of the death of a lot of people. And to kind of contend with the kind of beauty of destruction with the destruction of destruction, I think that is for Nolan part of the point. I really had to sit with that. It was one of the few times where I felt like the stakes were clay. You know, we don't get to see the after effects of this bomb. We don't see any of these victims, but we do see these explosions. We do get a sense of scale of how big they are, how much damage they can do. And I think that that, to me, is the choice that he made instead of of showing us victims, because I don't know how you watch something like that and not think about just how big and damaging this bomb is. Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to add, like, to Kate, your point about the beauty of his films. Like, the I've always, you know, I mean, like many people, like, it's like everybody who's buying up the tickets, you know, for the big mm-hmm. IMAX screenings of it. It's the, it's the set pieces in his movie. And, like, I will say, like you, even though I don't really remember what happened in Tenet, I can remember that opera house from the very beginning. Like, it just is happening right now. The visceral quality of his set pieces in his movies is, like... And I think what he really figured out, which is why I think a lot of people are raving about this potentially being his best film, is all that form, all that technical skill. It felt like it really met like mm-hmm. substance here in a way yes. that, I, I don't know, I, for me at least, it felt like it kind of, they felt like yeah. they really all came together. And the landscape of New Mexico, too, the way that it's shot mm-hmm. and filmed, mm-hmm. interlaced with the lab and, and the idea of the indigenous communities that were displaced by it and who, and, you know, I think there's this, and the haunting quality of a manifest destiny and the American landscape Mm -hmm. and the way that the Mm -hmm. camera expands to show it. And then even where he's coming of age stuff is shown with these like incredible images of European cities and universities, like, and they kind of flow like a bunch of, as you said, in the sort of time spanning quality of Nolan movies, a tree of life kind of vibe. There's a Terrence Mm -hmm. Malicky quality at times to it too. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, 
all of that felt like, unlike a series of set pieces where I'm like, oh, I love that 15-minute you know, action sequence, I really thought that the marriage here of like form and, and substance was really incredible. And that's why I found it really emotional that the story really carried it, and it wasn't just his incredible technical prowess and Hoyt van Hoyten was like, you know, amazing filmmaking. Like, it wasn't just all that. It was all of the things kind of working together. Um, in a perfect laboratory. Definitely. Well, let's let's talk about the form of this film because, I mean, he does a thing where he splits the timeline because Nolan got a Nolan. But (laughs) he also does this thing with a color where when we're seeing things from Oppenheimer's perspective, it's in full color. When basically we're, we're in anybody else's head, it jumps into black and white. How did that work on you? What was it doing for you? What was it? Did it take you out? It was a big choice. I really liked it, especially because we'll see multiple scenes from different perspectives. Mm. And I think to me, it was a politician's black and white and a scientist's color, mm-hmm. particularly when we're looking at a person who refuses to share their opinions or refuses to have one in order to get by. Mm-hmm. The idea of seeing in full color and being able to see every hue and every angle and every possibility, as opposed to here's a world full of very sharp yeses and nos. Mm-hmm. I, I did like it. To me, it really hammered the dichotomy of how people were observing the situation. I felt like one of the reasons it was really powerful was that was the DC stuff. That was the what I thought of as like the sort of C-SPAN part of the movie. Um, and <laughs> it felt like the way that it made you like here, you know, here we were used to seeing this news footage of the hearings and committees and people in, in suits in those kinds of places. And, and let's not deny that the star of those black and white sequences is Robert Downey Jr., who I would argue like kind of ran away with this movie for me as performances go. I mean, it was incredible in it. And it really kind of puts you into the, again, the contrast here with the landscape and, and where the, the lab is happening and where his life is happening and this national setting where... All of these moral ambiguities are, are wrestled with being this like, you know, black and white national space. I thought was really interesting. And I don't know, maybe it's from all these years living in D.C. I feel like I remember it in black and white. And so it seemed like the right place <laughs> to think about kind of, you know, where those sorts of proceedings happen. And I think people have been comparing it to JFK as well, like thinking Oliver sure. Stone's JFK, like sure, the kind yeah. of feeling of that sort of filmmaking. But those two are like often big IMAX sequences in a committee, which you wouldn't think could be great cinema, but they are. Yeah, I mean, as we've been talking, I think I've kind of figured out what it is that is feeling so incongruent to me as an immigrant to the United States. I think I necessarily have a certain set of politics. And this film advocates for a different kind of politic. Mm -hmm. And I found it interesting to be forced to kind of recognize that we're seeing these characters and we're seeing the way that they are interacting with the political climate that they're in and the choices that they're making because of that. But we're also seeing that they're the villains of the story. And I find it interesting that Nolan essentially just puts that on our plate to deal with. And I think that's where like the real interest is for me, because I think the way that the film is constructed really pushes you in, into a certain uh, set of politics, but it's also telling us that the politics that we know and that we've accepted are wrong. And I mm-hmm. find that to be like a really bold choice. Yeah, I hear what you're saying because, as I mentioned, whenever a character in this film says to Oppenheimer some variation of, well, you created the bomb, but other people dropped it, and history will remember that, that is so clearly false. That is a distinction without a difference. And whenever I started to believe that the film was attempting to sincerely make that case is when it lost me. I think it's a lot more truthful Mm -hmm. and interesting to sit with the fact that ambition and pride are part of the mix 
alongside dread and guilt because that's how humans work. We're not movie characters, right? Mm -hmm. we, we don't have one motivation you can point to. Um, yeah, that's a good point. The last thing I wanted to ask you guys about was the pew and blunt of it all. Mm -hmm. I could feel the effort this movie was making to avoid the cliché <laughs> of the wife of the brilliant man who simply exists to say how brilliant he is and how he yes. should go and be brilliant and follow his brilliant destiny while I'll be at home with these lousy kids <laughs> being less than brilliant while you go be brilliant. Yes. I could feel it. I don't think I avoided it completely, but it certainly tries. What'd you think? Mm -hmm. Man, Blunt said, I'll make it work. She showed up to work and did <laughs> the damn thing. Emily Blunt in here doing it. And then they give her a scene. And literally, I think it was me and Kate in the theater mm -hmm. being like, yes, mm -hmm. we loved it. It was such a great, <laughs> like, reveal great. of her character in a deeper way. That was kind of fun. Um, Pew plays a character she's sort of becoming known for, which is interesting. You know, she's still fairly early in her career, but she's really started to embrace these sort of moody, sexual, psychological characters that she totally kills. And it's great. Uh, there's a level of vulnerability i think i you know they're fine i found myself missing women in it though still uh particularly yeah. I because mean, that's they a known problem well for sure for sure they tease us with yeah. it though and here's it's again i feel nolan taking in public critique which i is something i really appreciate it because a guy this late in his career doesn't necessarily have to do that you know he could just be like sure. I, I do what i do <laughs> the straight maleness of it is very much always present in his films i mean I, I don't feel that strongly to critique it but i will say his movies are very straight and very male and and and, and very, very much and very, and white. very white of course mm -hmm. and and i mean i think the the kind of big performances that have, have been in his films, I and mean, even the last film, I think one of my favorite things about Tenet was Elizabeth Debicki's performance, but she oh, was sure. essentially a damsel in distress character, kind of for the most part. And I agree with everything that you guys were saying about him trying here, but I don't think that those sections, especially some of the filmmaking choices that are made with those women characters, I, I just felt like they were not the most successful part of the movie. Yeah, And I think I appreciate those are seem to be recurring limits in his films. Yeah, I agree. We have not touched on performances. Can I? Can we talk yeah. about the performances? And also sure. the score, real quick. It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah and that's composer Ludwig Gardenson who did the score. My darling, I love Ludwig him. Ludwig kills. Every time this boy shows up, oh my gosh, so fabulous. You just want to be like, you're like, wow, okay, the next John Williams has arrived. It's really trying things. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's too early to say that from Black Panther, that Mandalorian theme kills he did creed mm -hmm. yes so good we have just multiple levels of really quality like performance enhancing visually enhancing musical scores which is not something that you're always privy to ludwig killed robert downey jr makes some excellent choices i thought it was really interesting to watch him pivot post iron man not be iron man mm -hmm. yeah iron man is done he comes out and he's like, what if I just was on my Robert De Niro? What if I just mm -hmm. tried doing his like early 70s era of like, I'll come in and just be like this big presence in the film. And he, and it's so good. I'll also say very quickly, Josh Hartnett, where you been, buddy? So good. Perfect. So hot. Yep. So talented. Please put him in more things, Hollywood. I'll buy tickets. Well, I think you can hear from this discussion that we all really like this film, but we're also, you know, still processing it. Two things can be true. A little thing called quantum physics. Huh? fitting. We want to know what you think about Oppenheimer. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. And that brings us to the end of our show. Kate Young, Joelle Monique, Bilal Qureshi, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 
we want to take a moment to thank our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus subscribers. We appreciate you so much for showing your support of NPR. If you have not signed up yet and you want to show your support and listen to the show without a single sponsor break, head over to plus.npr.org slash happy hour or visit the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and edited by Mike Katziff. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. Engineering was performed by Robert Rodriguez. Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all tomorrow. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward, and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day.